Greetings. I am communicating to you telepathically from the distant future. I come from a doom world where irradiated mutants stalk a sandblasted desert hellscape where mankind has been reduced to little more than scattered war and death cults, where the sum total of human knowledge exists only in forgotten grimoires and etched into ancient rusted microchips, where it is no longer possible to share links to the Mossman Daily on Facebook. All hope is lost, and we are all waiting huddled by firelight, waiting to die. I implore you, traveler, to convince the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission to take a less aggressive view on the antitrust implications of its digital platform's inquiry, lest your pure, untouched world face the same grim fate. Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 46 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And, uh, well, folks, Facebook has finally hit the big red off button on the server labeled Australia. And Google is making big backroom deals with media barons like Rupert Murdoch. Meanwhile, I'm podcasting from the TMK Situation Room in an undisclosed location in international waters. And uh, to help us do some last-minute doomsday prepping before Australians everywhere are forced to log off forever, we're joined, we're joined by James Hennessy, who's editor of Business Insider Australia. Uh, Hino, thanks for coming on the show and, and helping us figure out just what's going on with, with big media, big platforms, big government, big everything. Uh, thanks for having me to come on and pick through the wreckage. <laughs> as of last week late last week when yeah when like facebook turned off all all news sharing uh as well as like a bunch of other pages you know that the bureau of meteorology uh, a bunch of like nonprofits and charities and advocacy organizations like they just switched off all anything news related uh for for sharing and all of a sudden i think the this news media bargaining code, which the debate for it's been going on for like six months here in Australia, but it's really blown up into a, an international story. So uh, maybe to start off with, could you just help us figure out what 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 the hell is the news media bargaining code? Um, and, and like this didn't just happen last week, right? This has been going on for a while. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so... The history of the news media bargaining code in Australia uh, has been ongoing for kind of a couple of years, actually. The government has been flagging that it wants to take uh, action against, you know, US tech giants, most specifically Facebook and Google. Um, uh, they're the ones that, that have been named kind of from the start uh, on behalf of Australia's uh, local news publishers and uh, media corporations. Uh, but to kind of really get a sense of what got the ball rolling on this um, and kind of gives a bit more, I guess, interesting a frame than has kind of been uh, peddled around uh, this story, is uh, it really kicked off with the ACCC, which is the Australian uh, Consumer and Competition Commission, which is basically our good uh, consumer protection and antitrust bureau. And it's run by a guy that has kind of been, I've seen parade around as sort of an icon in some US antitrust circles. I know like Matt Stoller and people like that love him. His name is Rod Sims and he runs the ACCC uh, and he is one of those guys that is a, kind of rare in world politics today where he's kind of like a real um, lover of free markets who is also really aggressively antitrust. You don't mm. see people like that at the top of regulators so much around the world, but that is what Rod Sims is. And basically the ACCC released uh, something called the Digital Platforms Inquiry, which they ran over the course of many months uh, early last year. And basically it was just looking at how do the major digital platforms interact with Australian uh, local Australian business, local Australian consumers, you know, are Australian consumers sufficiently protected when dealing with uh, Facebook and Google and any, any number of other international platforms? But one of the things that the uh, digital platforms inquiry honed in on, uh, which is something that media companies all around the world have been banging on about forever, is this kind of imbalance in bargaining power between uh, Facebook and Google and news publishers uh, 
which it basically comes down to the fact that Facebook and Google dominate the ad market globally now. Obviously, the yeah. the, the classic thing about the, the rivers of gold that used to come into newspapers from classifieds and and uh, and advertising, which let them you know fund their journalism and fund uh, all sorts of stuff, dried up. Uh, Facebook and Google now own all that, and now basically publishers are faced to forced to you know prostrate before Facebook and Google to get traffic to get uh, anything really. So really honed in on that, and basically the way that they so what happened then is the government took that uh, took the results of that inquiry and instructed the ACCC, okay, we'll come up with a solution for that. Uh, and the news media bargaining code is that solution. Um, what it basically does, it does a, it does a few things, but most prominently, it sets up a framework for um, Australian publishers and Facebook and Google, which are specifically named. Um, the the code does leave the door open to adding someone else there if they feel that they start acting in a non competitive way. Um, but it's Facebook and Google, uh, and basically setting up a framework for um, Facebook and Google to pay local publishers for their content. Um, and there are a few little other bits in there, which are kind of uh, a laundry list of complaints that publishers have had about big tech for ages, things like um, more transparency when they update their newsfeed and search algorithms. Um, the, the bargaining code basically calls for like, a, I think it's a 28-day window where Facebook and Google have to let the publishers know they're about to pull the rug out with the search and news algorithms. Mm. But the big one is obviously payment. And this is kind of where the kind of the meat of the debate comes in and what we're going to obviously talk about a fair bit more because it focuses on this idea that by displaying links to publishers, Facebook and Google earn a benefit uh, and are sent and which they are kind of taking from the news publishers. So they should pay the news publishers for the display of those links, which are obviously normally wrapped around with Facebook and Google advertising on their platforms. And that's kind of the mechanism that the ACCC has gone with. And that's the one that Facebook and Google both said they found untenable, that it was going to break the internet, that it's not the way the internet works um, and couldn't be done. Uh, and as people might have noticed when they were uh, reading the news recently, uh, Facebook and Google diverged in their response to that. Google essentially didn't quite surrender, but did basically come up with an arrangement to pay publishers for their content, whereas Facebook said, well, we're just going to remove news from the service altogether in Australia. So Australians aren't able to read Australian news, but also not international news either. Yeah, that divergence uh, at the at the 11th hour is really interesting because for yeah the last like six months, they've been a pretty unified front in terms of, uh, of, of essentially saying we're going to leave Australia. Like if this if this code passes, if this becomes law, then we're just unable to operate in Australia, uh, which has also caused like, you know, a bunch of other big monopoly platforms to step in and like Microsoft Bing, for example, <laughs> Microsoft's like, well, great, like uh, it, Google should leave Australia and uh, we will be a faithful servant to the Australian people and you can Bing everything instead. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and it kind of, it comes down to the fact, uh, and there are obviously there are a number of reasons, but I think the big one is that I don't think Facebook is necessarily lying when they say that news is a relatively small part of their economy and they can kind of live without it, especially in a, a, a market that's reasonably small like Australia. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, Google's mission or professed mission to, you know, organize the world's information, um, that starts looking pretty shaky when you take a massive chunk of content out. We treat them like the second class citizens, the best we're all born in a game, the USA's managers, Aussie foreign policy with George Bush's you you mentioned a few things regarding like what the code is meant to do. So, you know, one of the big aspects is this what I've seen people call like pay for links basically, right? So it's like um if Google and Facebook in particular is the kind of named platforms uh, in the code it, it talks about like three different criteria for how links are shared uh, or or how quote, making content available through links. So it's like content is reproduced on the service, content is linked to, um, and an extract or preview is made available. So it's like, I think, right, like that's one thing a lot of certain sides of the debate have been focusing on is this paying for links. And I think other sides of the debate, which you also mentioned, is this like making 
this kind of 28 day window, um, this transparency of like making news organizations aware of changes to the algorithm, giving and also like sharing data about users and clicks and things like that with news organizations. And it seems like a lot of people have fallen down on one side or the other um, about how like both of these things are bad or good in different ways. Could you help us parse through just like this debate? And also, I mean, you, you mentioned as well this idea like this is going to break the internet and you had a really great uh, Substack post I think really honing in on that idea of like, this is breaking the internet or this is changing the nature of a free and open internet. So could you help us parse through this debate about the code? Sure. Um, I think one of the things that makes this issue so fraught um, and makes uh, people argue so strenuously about it is I don't think that even though you know it's Facebook and Google are often lumped in as the two kind of big bads in the world of news media like I don't think Facebook and Google work remotely similarly they don't have the same um, attitude to content at all people don't use them for the same reasons um, mm. so I mean you could you can realistically argue um, and this is what Google tried to do that um, they don't really want people to hang around in Google search forever they don't derive benefit from people sitting on Google search and scrolling through Google search for ages and being locked into Google search or Google News um, they you know facilitate people moving from point A to point B if you want to find X you type it in it comes up ideally you're the answer that satisfy using the first few results you go through and that's it Whereas Facebook, obviously, they derive benefit from news content by having people just sit on an infinite feed, scrolling through, consuming stuff. Um, so you could probably argue, and I have argued, that the the news media bargaining, as it is constituted, uh, feels like a more of a direct hit on Facebook than it does Google. Um, mm. And the the argument between Australia and Facebook kind of came down to the, almost like playing chicken, like who was more right, who was more right in terms of who relies on who more. And, you know, obviously Facebook has been like, well, you're the one that relies on us more and we're, we're going to prove it by pulling out. Whereas with Google, it was kind of a different argument. But look, when I first saw the code and I saw the arguments people were making against it, like even, and here's the thing that I think really um, gets to the heart of why it's become so fraught is that a lot of the people who thought it was bad were also, were not by any means kind of broke pro big tech people um they, these tend to be people who didn't like facebook and google necessarily but also had kind of you that classic sort of liberal utopian view of how the internet should work and thought that this was a wrong-headed way to deal with the problem um because they kind of consider it almost like a net neutrality issue like once mm. you start talking about payments uh for links and not not all links are equal um and the very very fair point that a lot of people have made that um, you know if pub big publishers are being paid for their links on Facebook and Google, what about you know any number of other businesses or you know Yemen posters or, or whatever are not being paid for their for their links? Which is you know a really I think is a, a totally fair point. Um, and it really obviously comes down to the level of power that we're talking about in locked in struggle right now. The people mm -hmm. further down the chain are not quite as involved in it. So yeah, all fair points. Uh, the thing, and I, I was kind of sympathetic to that view at the beginning, you know, the idea that I think this is kind of the wrong mechanism to go about it, like the display of links, um, is that a sort of a slippery slope? And while I still kind of harbor some reservations about that, in much the same way, I think, you know, big media versus big tech being kind of like an alien versus predator situation, um, at the same time, like the, uh, and as I kind of wrote about in my, in my Substack yesterday, in what sense is uh, the internet aligned with that sort of classic view where all links are equal uh, and it, you can get to whatever piece of content you want to get to just by um, searching for it? Uh, our experience online is so thoroughly and deeply mediated by Facebook and Google first and foremost. Um, they've completely kind of unwritten that classic way of thinking about the internet by you know turning the web into kind of like a... a a network of sort of algorithmic sludge and things being um, fed to you and forced to you. You're being chased around the internet by ad trackers and customization uh, algorithms and all sorts of stuff. Uh, so it's kind of like, well, what fundamental state of nature on the internet are we actually trying to protect? And, and you know, quite possibly this could be bad, but it's like, I don't know what universe uh, 
people criticizing on that grounds think they're returning to. Um, that, that, that's kind of that's that's my thinking on that. Yeah, no, I think that's great. In fact, I want to quote something from your Substack piece, which I thought really, really nailed it. You say, "quote But we're not talking about the internet of twenty years ago, and we're not in a vacuum." The thing that irks me about this debate is that even if you take a very narrow view of what breaking or destroying the fundamental principles of the internet looks like, big tech has already done this on a cataclysmic and perhaps irreversible scale, far more than any link tax by a country of 25 million at the arse end of the Pacific could ever hope to do. Now, I, I, I think that really nails it because this is also something that like I was also really thinking a lot about as well is that it feels like when a lot of people use this phrase like this is going to break the internet they really they don't mean they don't mean what we want it to mean here on TMK which is like literally taking hammers and like smashing the servers and deleting blocks of code and like actually breaking the internet which that needs to happen but um, what they actually mean is like this is going to change some technical operation to what we see as the status quo uh, and some people might not like that and some people might like that and that's a bad thing. Like it is this like way narrower version. And, and I think that you're totally right. It's couched in this idea of some kind of, I don't know how people still have this like utopian vision of what the internet quote unquote is. Um, if it ever was actually that thing, as you point out, like it's definitely not that thing anymore. It really is uh, a series of like fiefdoms run by big platforms that we kind of like get shuttled between one and the other, right? Like, are people wanting to go back to some kind of like GeoCities internet, the heyday of blogging? Like, I, I don't know. I don't know what it is that people want to return to. If you type Google into Google, you can break the internet. I think your piece. You know, communicates also another point, you know, we're talking about these utopia visions and also what feels like other commentators obscuring the company's motives or agency or decision here. You know, even if we were to say bargaining code uh, flawed, the intentions are in doubt, uh, the idea that a corporation should be able to lash out in such a ridiculous manner is being the idea that that can be called like calling a bluff you know, is absurd to me on so many uh, levels. And I see even among people who might not support Facebook's move, resonance with it, with the idea that, well, Facebook had to respond, you know, it had to do something instead of going to the negotiating table from the first place for a bill that hasn't even passed yet, right? As it's now doing and could have done to begin with, or maybe it had. And so I'm curious, like, you know, what do you think also these arguments where people are not only doing the utopian vision, but kind of saying like Facebook and Google have to respond, they have to do something and that, yeah, this sort of thing might be too extreme, but it's, you know, this is an extreme move. They have to respond in kind. Yeah, I think the thing that makes it really interesting, kind of coming back to the the point where I think if you, if you, the most helpful way to think about this is obviously an antitrust action, right? And because the media and free speech and platforming and deplatforming and all that kind of stuff has sort of um, occupied so much of the discourse about how people think about the internet and things like that, that people think it's kind of an attack on that stuff when um, Google and Facebook or any other social platform are challenged. Um, and they find it really hard to think about it in terms of like, you know, a squat, a fight between, you know, a sovereign state and a, and a company. Um, the, the one I always like to kind of compare it to that's really interesting is that we, Australia had a really massive battle early in the century with international tobacco companies over their plain packaging laws. Australia was like the first country to, um, you know, on a large scale ban or mandate, sorry, um, plain packaging on cigarettes and other tobacco products. And, you know, thanks to international free trade agreements and all that kind of stuff, the tobacco giants took Australia to the uh, the highest courts they could. There was a massive legal stoosh over it. And I kind of like, it's not radically different from that kind of situation, but just because we have this, you know, quasi-mythological view of how the internet is and how it should function and it being, you know, I guess the manifestation of the public square and all that kind of nice um stuff we find it really hard to talk about it 
uh, on those grounds, um, that really this is uh, a sovereign non-US country uh, locking horns with US countries that have uh, exceptional, powerful reach and incredible um, dominance, uh, almost monopolistic dominance in the spaces in which they operate. Um, so it's, uh, I, I feel like I've drifted from the original point a little bit, but the, I th it, it's interesting that it captures people on kind of that level and people who maybe would not be inclined to defend big tech on a variety of other issues. Um, the other side of it, which I think is also, which I think is somewhat valid, is that, um, you know, uh, there's a lot of opposition to the code here from people who are like very, very strongly anti-News Corp and anti-Rupert mm -hmm. Murdoch. Obviously, uh, Rupert Murdoch occupies a pretty substantial place in the Australian psyche. Um, <laughs> even more he just, so. He just got an US. award, right? Like some kind being, of award for being a good Australian, even though he's yeah. not technically Australian anymore. He's not Australian he's American anymore, for no. tax purposes. Well, he's fully American now. So it's actually quite interesting to see the opposition on those grounds develop um, because to a lot of people in Australia, this looks like the extent to which Rupert Murdoch is personally involved in this dispute is obviously um, questionable. I don't know what, how, how involved he really is. Um, you know, it's Rupert Murdoch lobbying uh, a centre-right uh, government. So like a, a, the government of, you know, Rupert Murdoch's favoured government to basically smash Facebook and Google on the behalf of News Corp and that being successful. And now obviously Facebook news is blocked. So these people are kind of like, well, don't, don't point the finger at Facebook here. Um, Facebook just did what they had to do. Point the finger at Rupert Murdoch for lobbying for this in the first place. Part of me is kind of like, I, I can absolutely see where people are coming from. It comes back to that original um, uh, point I was making about, you know, I don't want to litigate necessarily either side here um, because it's, a, it's hard to pick who is the truly sort of valorant figure here. But uh, at the same time, you know, Facebook and Google would be would be loving that that they that they have a, a really strong wedge there. And the uh, the other point I would make on that is that even though yes, it is kind of News Corp which is backing this particular action and it's done on their behalf, there's no you know that's reasonably accurate. Um, you know, it is sort of like the symbol of what I I think the next decade or so of tech regulation is probably going to look like in the absence of like a, a proper ground up revolution, which would be lovely. Um, I feel like a lot of regulation against tech is going to be by other large players, sovereign states, whoever, who push back um, and kind of chip away at the Titans using whatever kind of mechanisms at hand, um, you know, kind of like playing with levers and pulling and pressing buttons and seeing what falls out. <laughs> um, which you know, not not necessarily ideal. Um, if you if you've got a sort of a utopian view of how this should play out, but that's what it's going to look like. And potentially next time, it's not going to be um, someone as execrable as News Corp uh, on the other side of that as well. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's a really good point, and maybe we can expound on that a little bit for listeners who might not be aware that right in response to this, and this was a line of criticism of the code. Uh, you know, even late last year, people were saying, right, like this code is likely to favor like big established players like News Corp uh, who are who are going to be able to use this as some kind of leverage um, uh, against platforms like Facebook and, and Google, right? Because the code mandates essentially like a like an arbitration system, right? Where it's like these big news organizations, which is importantly the only the only news organizations that are covered by the code have to meet like certain requirements, right? Like they have to uh, they have to register with the Australian Media and Communications Authority as like a registered news business, and to do that, they have to uh, reach revenue thresholds of uh, I think it's like one hundred and fifty thousand dollars per year. Um, they have to have a primary purpose of providing core news content to Australian audiences uh, and be covered by relevant professional standards. So this, the, 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 the code automatically excludes like a lot of independent and smaller news organizations. So it kind of has this like big media baked into it where, you know, it, it does create an arbitration system where it's like, unless big media and big tech can come to the negotiation table and figure out deals, which is what Google has been doing with 
uh, News Corp um, has also struck similar deals with like Nine Entertainment, right? Like these big um, kind of private news organizations, unless they can come to the table and come out with these deals, then the government will kick in and mandate some kind of uh, some kind of arbitration, right? So. Yeah, I think that's a really important detail there. You know, I think a lot of the criticisms of the code, um, people saying this is exactly what's going to happen. And now we see this is exactly what has happened um, are kind of borne out in that way. No, absolutely. Um, and it's it's kind of interesting because, uh, yeah, obviously the, the two big strongest lobbyists for the code and the ones who are um, who benefit at least in terms of dollar figures in the biggest way are News Corp and Nine Entertainment Co. Um, obviously, uh, Australian media is fairly consolidated in that regard. So that does capture kind of the majority of the, the major press that the majority of the population engages with. Um, you know, as a as a full disclosure, um, Business Insider Australia is licensed by Pedestrian Group, which is owned by Nine. So I'm, I'm part of that, the, mm-hmm. the family there. If you read the original um, ACCC, uh, well, the, the proposed code and the ACCC sort of communications around it, you see one of their goals was also to protect regional media, mm. which is a lot, which is also kind of consolidated in its own way, also a little bit fragmented across a few different uh, owners of multiple newspapers across regional parts of Australia. Um, and basically, they because I, I think anticipating this criticism um, that you know this was going to overly favour Nine and News, the ACCC was like, well, look, the regional papers and smaller publishers uh, can also be part of this arbitration process, um, and it points to the possibility of them basically forming basically arbitration unions essentially teaming up with other small publishers to negotiate for a better position with the with the larger publishers but at the same time that feels like a secondary order consideration to um, the big publishers getting their coin um, the other side of this uh, it's quite funny my immediate boss has a, a opinion piece in the Sydney Morning Herald this morning uh, about the code and supporting the code and talking about something that is basically the the argument from non-news. They don't actually really want the government to enforce this. They want to use the code as j- just a stick to whack Facebook and Google and force them to come to these agreements um, without the government actually having to step in and arbitrate. And because the, the actual arbitration process is what Google and Facebook have said they have one of the biggest problems with because it uses the uh, quote-unquote baseball arbitration model where Facebook and or Google or whoever comes in with a figure, the um, news publishers come in with a figure and then the independent arbitrator goes, I like that figure more um, and picks one of the two. And Facebook and Google thought they would, where they would be discriminated against in that process and any arbiter would just pick the bigger figure basically. But the idea that this is just like a, a, le- a legislative trigger to kind of force Google to be all right and actually sit down and, and talk to people. Getting back to the original point, yeah, it is kind of overly strongly biased towards the two big publishers. That is, I feel, a an outcome of the fact that Australia's media is so consolidated in the first place. I, I, I was reading uh, some coverage in this in the Financial Times, and there was a quote by from Josh Frydenberg, who's you know federal treasurer for Australia, taking credit of the the deal that News Corp and uh, struck with Google saying like this deal would not have happened if not for the code, right? Uh, kind of coming out and saying that like, yeah, no, this was the whole point was to, um, we were going to use the government as a stick to make Rupert Murdoch sit down with Google and hash out a deal. Uh, yeah, totally. We can speculate for hours on what the government's kind of motivation is. One big aspect that kind of goes unspoken, obviously the the, the narrative that gets trotted around a lot is, is you know the government sitting in their um, big castle under lightning strikes with Rupert Murdoch hashing out how they're <laughs> going to destroy Google is one and, and you know reasonably compelling on its own grounds. But the other one is that the fa- the government has made a lot of noise in the past about pursuing multinational tax avoidance and really cracking down and making Google and Facebook pay tax. And that stuff has sort of not worked out so well. So you can also think of this as just a way of doing that, of kind of indirectly taxing Google and Facebook for operating in Australia. But the third thing is there's a second order argument in in Australia about uh, the funding of the ABC, which is Australia's public broadcaster. Obviously, mm-hmm. the Conservative governments and the ABC have historically never gotten along. Uh, conservative governments have always accused the ABC uh, of harboring sort of left-wing bias. So very much the same arguments that happened in the UK with the BBC. 
And there's been lots of ongoing funding arguments about the ABC's, you know, uh, funding going down by attrition every single federal budget. And so I think one other strategic angle for the government here is if they just, as other people have suggested as an alternative, found a way to tax Google and Facebook more directly and then, you know, allocated the revenue into some sort of, I don't know, journalism fund or like public fund, the immediate argument would be, well, why can't you fund the ABC, which is already a publicly funded journalism, a journalistic enterprise. So I feel like the uh, that's the other thing the government is trying to do is like, all right, well, we want to put some money back into the world of publishing and news, but in a way that doesn't mean we have to fund the um, public broadcaster that we hate. So there's kind of like a right. weird 4D chess going on here. So I think there's a, basically, I'm skeptical of the, this is just collusion between the big media and the government, the top level. Um, also partially because uh, Labor, the opposition also supports this, despite the fact a lot of big media and, and Labor do not get along very well at all. So there's a, there, so there's a little bit more complexity there, but at the same time, I do see where people are coming from with that. And the optics of it are, um, are troubling for some people. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think that's that's totally fair enough. I think the optics question is really interesting as well, because like, I, th I think the reason why this has become a big international story is because quite explicitly, Canada, the UK, the EU are watching very closely what's going on here because they're also thinking of like, oh, can we do something very similar? Can we also uh, use this as a way to attack uh, in a very light way the power of platforms and and also support journalism and, and news, which, you know, I think has broadly kind of public support, right? Like people are like, yeah, we, we, we want like good news or we want good journalism. It does seem that self-consciously there's a lot of that kind of like Australia is very much a test bed with the news media bargaining code, um, knowing that a lot of other much bigger governments um, in the Western world are, are looking on uh, to see how, how this actually happens and, how, and plays out. I think the really telling thing in that regard, I 100% agree with you. Like we are, we are a laboratory. We've often been a laboratory for policy um, around the world, and often not very nice policy. But <laughs> uh, in this case, maybe a little bit more, maybe a little bit better, a little bit more neutral. But the um, the thing that I found really telling was when I actually can't remember whether it was Google or Facebook's threat. Uh, one one of the two were making the threat to pull their product. I think it might have been the initial Facebook threat. Uh, they didn't leak it to Australian media. They gave that story to the New York Times. Um, so the New York Times was, broke yeah. the story that um, they would turn off the news uh, in Australia or, or hobble search or, or whatever it was. And I think it, it's because all of everything that Facebook and Google are doing, the audience is not necessarily, you know, 25 million people uh, in Australia. The audience is every regulator around the world who might be getting a smart idea to try the same thing. Um, the fact that they responded so aggressively to this one, um, I think is partially a due to the fact that Australia is reasonably small. So at the end of the day, if Facebook and Google completely withdrew their money, um, withdrew their products from Australia, like, you know, they might be able to, to wear that as compared to like, you know, the EU, for example. Um, but also uh, because, yeah, if it successfully goes through, some big deals are struck, they're forced to pay to stay in a you know a relatively wealthy market like Australia is. Then yeah, exactly. The EU might be like, well, how about what if we pursue that angle? And there's already stories around about EU regulators being like, well, that's quite interesting what Australia is doing. Um, and I think that would that would be like a, a not maybe not a doomsday scenario for big tech, but certainly a pretty substantial thorn in their side. I think yeah, you know, this threat of a good examples are really. You know, poignant thing we constantly see, especially with these large tech companies, right? Attempts to smother regulations or the idea that they can be regulated instead of dealt with or dealt in maybe um, uh, when it comes to designing a friendly regulatory environment for them. Do you, do you see this, you know, spat, this fight that is still going on between Australia and Facebook? Um, deterring some of these regulators it, it seems that the backlash that facebook got would i think provide cover for regulators 
or maybe emboldened some who are interested in seizing the reins and saying, well, they're not going to do that shit to us. Or, you know, it, it's too painful for them to do it to us because, you know, we might get some domestic backlash, but they will get even worse than they did then in Australia and suffer a bigger hit. Because like you said, you know, Australia is 25 million. You can't re- conceivably do this to the European Union or the United States, right? Or, you know, any large country outside of Australia. I was really interested back when it was sort of in the threat phase and Google and Facebook were both making all sorts of threats about what they were going to do. Um, I was kind of like, when the chips fall, who will the Australian public side with? And I thought it was kind of a, an interesting question because Australians generally don't like big tech on, on kind of the same grounds that they don't like any large American company or, or large international company of any stripe um, sort of occupying a really substantial part of the Australian economy or whatever, or, or dominating a particular space. Every time there's public polling on whether Facebook and Google should pay substantially more in tax, it's normally like overwhelmingly in favor, you know, the high 80% or something. But on the other side of the on the other side of the coin, um, I don't think Australians necessarily have an incredibly positive view of their news companies. Uh, not mm-hmm. to say that, that they have a negative view. It's just I think for most people, it's just a, a neutral. You know, that's that's the newspaper. That's that. I don't really know a whole lot about the industry. You know, whatever. Um, and, and when the chips fall, um, maybe they would be more inclined to side with, you know, a service that they use every day be it like Facebook or Google uh, as versus companies that they have no stake in really. But I think to your point, if I was a regulator watching what the react, the local reaction has been in Australia, I would be incredibly emboldened by it um, because the, the anger locally is as far as I can see um, really directed towards Facebook. I think Facebook just really fucked it up basically in the way that they executed it. You know, you brought it up at the beginning of the show um, how when they banned all Australia's news companies, they also banned a whole swathe of uh, public servicing. Lots of state health departments were banned or not not banned, sorry, rather, but all their content hidden. Um, a lot of yeah, uh, charities, et cetera. Obviously, we're in the, even though Australia's done pretty well out of COVID, we're still in the middle of a pandemic. We're in the beginning of a vaccine rollout. And then all of a sudden, all of these um, health agencies uh, mm. were... Gone and people were really pissed off about that. I've been actually trying to work, figure out because it, it seems really, it doesn't seem likely to me that Facebook just accidentally banned a bunch of state health agencies. I feel like their strategy must have been, oh, the code is so expansive in the way it describes news. This is what happens, it all goes away. Um, right. But I think the average person will see that and be like, that's like completely unacceptable. Um, yeah. And, you know, the, the, spe- the specificity of the argument that the ACCC made from the beginning that, you know, Facebook owns an uh, anti-competitive share of the ad market. I feel a much better debate for Facebook to be having than, you know, Facebook is a public utility, like an essential utility and it should be regulated as an essential utility, which is basically what they've exposed themselves to by doing that. Yeah. Um, if, if I were the top operational lines at Facebook, I would much rather be having an argument about the ad market and keeping the ad market, you know, whatever fair than, than that one. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I, like I said, if I was a regulator watching a, the public response in Australia, I think I would probably be quite emboldened to see that you could do this with kind of like the support of the Australian population or the local population. It was It was such a wild response to just... Yeah, just yank the cord on the un- entire Australian server, right? And, and then, and then immediately, um, when there's all the pushback, be like, "Oh, sorry, it was it was an accident, it was a glitch." Um, sorry, sorry, we're trying to fix it. I'm trying to delete it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like they're trying to play on that kind of like, "Oh, we messed up." Rather than, I think you were right. It it really was a kind of uh, you know, they'd rather smash the toy than allow anybody to play with it in a different way, right? It's like if we can't have it our way, then nobody gets it. Yeah, I think because that sort of strategy makes sense, right? The idea that if you can take down everything, it both communicates how you need everything, and hope, and they would hope instead of then being like, well, if we need Facebook, then why do you guys get to decide or make all the decisions about it? Versus the hope of it being like anger falling then on the authorities for letting this happen, which I suppose would have been like, you know, it's a fair 
strategy to think is how or to think how things are going to roll out but probably underestimating just how like angry people ended up being especially i think the covid angle was very important right you know online registration for vaccines across the world has already been such a mess especially in the united states i don't know how it is in in, in australia specifically that i can only imagine that it was even more frustrating and immediate blame assigned to facebook for just fucking up something that has already been not smooth yeah no, right? totally um yeah i think they yeah they they really miscalculated on where the where the rage would fall and it's just and you know the the government strategically from the beginning has really pushed this as kind of like a a big u.s company can't come here and push around our scrappy local multi-billion dollar upstarts um (laughs) and and i think you know people do respond to that um and you know especially in this kind of contemporary era where you know globalization looks a bit shaky and there's kind of a re-emergence of sort of like a across the whole political spectrum a kind of like populist nationalism where people are rejecting kind of that sort of thing mm-hmm. um I, I feel like it was just it, the exact wrong political moment um for them to pull that particular uh stunt yeah, no, I've, I also saw a lot of people pointing out as well. There's like, oh, they're very curious that Facebook can immediately shut down all of these organizations when, uh, you know, people have been for, for a very long time trying to get them to do that to like conspiracy theories and misinformation and stuff like that. And like in our Patreon episode last week, we went through and talked about that big New Yorker piece about Facebook's so-called Supreme Court, right? They're like content moderation oversight board, uh, which is taking a very like internal piecemeal post by post approach to regulating content. Um, and then like days after that uh, New Yorker piece uh, dropped, which which was based on a lot of insider access journalism of, of the uh, writer, Kate Klonick, having access to Zuckerberg all the way down. Um, and then like days after that, that, that essay dropped, like they just flipped the big off switch on everything in Australia being like, oh, actually, actually you can do that. Um, and, I, and I also saw a lot of people as well pointing out that like all of the conspiracy theorists people like pete evans right like uh you know for non-australians right like pete evans big celebrity chef um was a judge on like my kitchen rules right like was on tv all the time and has over time just become a a locus for all things like far right-wing conspiracy theories like anti-covid anti-vax like he embodies all of it um and is also an extremely popular facebook poster uh just has like a massive following massive engagement in all of his posts and uh he was still left up he was still able to post right Mm. like he was left up until he posted you know the black the nazi black sun or whatever (laughs) whatever what did he do what did he do he did that. He like posted like a meme with the Son and Rad or the the Black Sun in it, and then tried to claim he didn't didn't know what it was. He just liked the the rest of the meme kind of That's around. That was cool. Which, yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, you know how memes are about. They're not really about the whole image. They're about they're about parts. the bits that you like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which you know, but yeah, totally. Um, and the like the other thing that I wanted to say, kind of around all that stuff, is and the, the one kind of argument I haven't really touched on, which is actually a very main argument here is that uh, a lot of people, including the companies themselves, are saying, you know, if the Australian media finds the relationship with Google and Facebook so intolerable and so lopsided and so anti-competitive, they could just not be on Facebook, right? They could just delete their Facebook accounts, not post their stuff on Facebook. They could voluntarily deregister from um, from Google. You know, they, you, could, you can do that through a form or whatever. Uh, and then all of a sudden that problem goes away and you are free to uh, set your own destiny as a publisher uh, without either of those two platforms uh, guiding you. Um, and I think Facebook are just nuking all of Australian, not just Australian news publications, but all of these other essential services completely kind of obliterated that argument by making people realize just how wedded they were to Facebook for getting sort of essential information and how Facebook is kind of the staging ground for so much uh, information transfer and, and for the average person as their kind of standard means of news collection.
also draws me to a, a, a similar argument that I saw um, in the Sydney Morning Herald an op-ed by Samantha Florini, who's part of the Digital Rights Watch, argued something very similar, saying, quote, the, those who shrug and just say, just go elsewhere, overlook that Facebook has spent years positioning itself as an indispensable part of life and source of information. It may have built a model of friends marking themselves as safe during a crisis, yet it has now completely forgone the focus on public safety and connectivity and flexed its immense power to the government at the cost of individuals and communities who have created spaces on its platform. Like, I think regardless of, of the very flawed approach of the media code um, and you know it's the let them fight meme of, of like big media and big tech kind of going at each other just two kaiju tearing everything apart while we're all collateral damage um, it has also I think really revealed that aspect that uh, just as you were getting at right like they've set themselves up as this essential infrastructure in people's lives. They've worked really hard to create these very direct connections and relationships with consumers and users of their platforms, but then at the same time, showing that they have complete disregard for, for any of that uh, and that they, they want to have their cake and eat it too, right? They want to be this essential infrastructure and they want to have um, this direct connection to users uh, while also uh, eschewing any of the responsibility or obligations that come with that. Yeah, um, absolutely. And as I kind of, I, I wrote about this as well in the Substack as well, where it's kind of like, you know, Facebook did not just accidentally become the core of uh, the core newsfeed for the world, I guess you could say. Just, they didn't just stumble into that. Uh, mm -hmm. The, you know, the, the early 2010s, as anyone that was working in uh, digital media at that time or at a publisher or whatever would know, um, even if you weren't working somewhere and you just had like, you know, a meme page or whatever, was kind of like the gold rush for uh, Facebook referral traffic. They really turned the, the spigot on. You couldn't open Facebook without seeing, you know, 50 news articles occasionally interspersed with a photo of your, your friend and family. Like this was like <laughs> a really big, and they were encouraging publishers, you know, come to our platform, look how much traffic we're giving you, look um, what we're doing. Um, and then obviously every, every publisher on the planet did exactly that, um, started reorienting their strategy around Facebook, as has been shown on multiple occasions, often around, you know, fake or fabricated data, uh, like with mm -hmm. the pivot to video and whatever. So they've always, they have always sought to capture and retain publishers. And it's only kind of after the uh, after 2016 in the US where all of a sudden Facebook was no, and the internet more generally was no longer a, a nice liberal utopian project, but was now, you know, subject to dark reactionary forces or whatever, that they st suddenly were like, oh shit, we don't actually really want to be in the news game anymore because it mm -hmm. exposes us to so much risk. Uh, and they started, you know, turning the tap off, making it harder for publishers to get that beautiful flow of referral traffic, but not before uh, the fact that the entire um, news ecosystem was engineered for Facebook with Facebook, either Facebook or Google as an audience and the actual person reading the news uh, becomes kind of like a disposable bystander in a way. <laughs> Even though, so now Facebook steps back and says, hey, you guys can leave the platform at any time you like. And it's like, well, every media company, certainly in Australia and, off, and the world as well, have kind of re-engineered re their kind of way, entire way of writing and creating and publishing and presenting news to fit your like Byzantine kind of whims. And not just news publications, you know, a whole, a whole range of institutions. And now all of a sudden, uh, well, you can just leave if you like do what you're going to do. And that, that comes to the, what you said at the beginning of what, what, what does an alternate media ecosystem actually look like? Um, and maybe is this a, a good thing? Does this snap them out of this stupor and they can try to build something new? Uh, and that's, those are, those are good questions. I do want to talk about that question of what, what would a better alternative to the code look like? Um, but I also want to, I want to get your, your viewpoint on uh, one of the, the criticisms of the code that speaks to something we talk about a lot here on TMK, which is that like, you know, so I'm, I'm going to quote just a, a little bit of piece from um, Lizzie O'Shea, who's been a big critic of the code and is founder of Digital Rights Watch in Australia. Um, and she says uh, in, in a piece in Overlim, um, quote, 
The code is a, is a model that will serve to entrench a model of media production based on data extractivism. In essence, the code allows media organizations to learn more about how tech companies have maximized the profitability of the web, and it creates a relationship of mutual dependence between digital platforms and news organizations, furthering the endless commodification of users at the expense of democracy. And here she's talking about that provision in the code that's not just the, the, the paying for links, but also that kind of like sharing of data, um, that transparency around like changes to the algorithm. Because, um, you know, as, as you were talking about, right, like a lot of, uh, you know, news organizations have been very reactive to shifts on on Google or Facebook or any of these platforms, oftentimes based on, yeah, like the, the pivot to video is a perfect example, right, where it's like Facebook had a bunch of what turned out to be like basically favorite fabricated data um, about all of the traffic that video was getting. And so you saw news organizations just like completely restructuring the, the purpose of, of their newsrooms was to just producing video content, uh, which turned out just to be a big sham. As someone that's been in the news game for a while, um, what do you think of that, the, the react, the, that kind of criticism of opening up this data extractivism, opening up that transparency? I think that it's incredibly, th th this to me is probably the most powerful critique um, on, if, on taking a more macro view of what the relationship between big tech and big media is. Because yes, this is kind of an antitrust action that does kick the shins of big tech, but also it's being done on their terms, really. They are even like, we're, we're chipping away, but still acknowledging that they're the big dogs and, you know, they're going to lead the way for the, and their model of exactly like, like data extractivism is the way of the future. And we're just kind of hanging onto the coattails for the ride and making sure they give us a seat at the table. So yes, that's a, that's a big criticism. The thing that um, uh, kind of exemplifies this for me is, you know, yes, the goal of the bargaining code was basically succeeded in the sense that they have forced Google to the table and Google is now paying these media companies and having to open up the wallet. Um, the way that this actually works is that, you know, Google have set up a new product called Google News Showcase, um, which I'm not even 100% clear on how it's actually supposed to work. I believe it's kind of like almost like an Apple News thing, except it also displays in search and throughout other Google products and in Discover and whatever, which, you know, is quite literally a, a consumer facing product that Google has put together as a salve to this exact problem, like publishers mm -hmm. kicking up a stink um, about not being paid. So yes, they're opening the, they're opening their wallets. They're paying publishers in exchange for publishers, you know, signing on and opening their paywalls to Google news showcase, and then becoming part of that even more deeply entrenched into that Google ecosystem. You know, uh, whether that, whether that's regarding data or how stories are written or how stories are marketed or, or you know, will this story do well on Google News Showcase? You know, mm -hmm. all the, you, you, you really are ceding to that kind of logic. Um, so I think it's a, a big concern um, that, you know, yes, while this the code might be a win and it might be encouraging bigger wins overseas, blah, blah, blah. Like, are we just accepting Google and Facebook's logic of the internet? Um, have we essentially just surrendered to Google and Facebook's view of the world um, and the way that, you know, uh, the news business or journalism more broadly should work? And I think that's a, a really good question. And it opens the, the other question of, you know, what would the alternative to that look like? And not just a nice utopian vision of how we think journalism should be, but, you know, how can it work in, in a kind of democratic beautiful way in the in the world that we've been presented with are there any doors that you feel are closed off potentially permanently because of the ascendance of facebook and google and the business models or patterns they've cultivated well um i don't know i think there i've found over the past couple of years there's obviously been a bigger drive towards non trying to as uh, as you said Jason, reigniting the the classic blogging era or whatever like you know obviously um i'm, I'm kind of skeptical that newsletters and Substack are really anything except you know media people in their own little weird ecosystem creating uh new models of uh new models to talk to one another but <laughs> i mean so i'm I not mean, sure I mean, to that to that real quick like i just saw before we started recording uh some screenshots on twitter of like the the top Substack subscribers 
Um, and it's all people like Andrew Sullivan and Glenn Greenwald yeah. and Matt Iglesias who all have like tens of thousands of subscribers at $5 a month, right? And and so like they're making a, a very pretty penny telling people about how they've been shut out from, <laughs> the, from, the, from the mainstream media. Yeah, and you know, there's... Obviously, I'm skeptical that those kind of platforms have a huge amount of valence outside of like media circles who like to talk about this kind of thing. Um, right. You know, I I find it to be like I, I think Substack's a, a good platform. I, I use it, and I think you know whether it's successful or not. I do like the fact that it breaks you out of that. It puts news right in front of or like stuff that you like to read, like stuff that you actually like to read, not just what um, you know Google and Facebook. I think you might like might want to read or, or these authoritarian like to... editors telling you what you want to read <laughs> exactly well as, a, as an authoritarian <laughs> editor myself as, you know, someone who editing is censorship fist. james editing uh, is censorship every word removed you know is a blow <laughs> against liberalism but, <laughs> but look whatever um but I, I i think it still does speak to you know, uh, 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 hunger that is there generally that people are like, oh, you know, I, I do actually like reading things. I like reading stuff consistently. I, I want to hear from people that I like reading and I want to I want to kind of mediate or run my own kind of consumption experience or whatever. Again, like the fact that I'm talking in the language of like consumption is probably dangerous as well, but, <laughs> but I think you know <laughs> what I mean. To me, that suggests there are there is an audience and there are things that can be done but to me, you know, the barrier is that, you know, until something changes, people still do go to Facebook for news. They still go to Twitter for news and Twitter has its own, uh, Twitter while, while being better for this stuff is still has its own weird little ways of operating things, right? Mm -hmm. Weird little externalities for the way that it operates things. What I'm going to be interested to see, especially as someone, you know, runs a website and has to be tied up with traffic numbers and how many people are reading and all that kind of stuff. Um, BI Australia, at least, is kind of lucky in the sense that we're not, we were never overly reliant on Facebook. We Some some publishers are obviously going to be hit harder by this in Australia right now than others. So we, we can definitely weather the blow. But my interest right now and Australia is going to be a fantastic experiment in this, at least for the near future, is like, what do all those people on Facebook do now? Like the people who, of which there was a, um, uh, like Nielsen put out a thing, that was like 30% of the Australian reading population, I think it was 30%, uh, get their news from Facebook exclusively and don't mm. go elsewhere for it. So like 30% is a pretty significant chunk of the Australian news consuming population. Are they just going to not, because it's quite possible these are people that maybe wouldn't be that interested in reading that much news and just read it because it's there on a feed they're looking at anyway. But or are they going to go elsewhere looking for it? And if they do go elsewhere looking for it, where are they going to go? Um, mm -hmm. You know, because that kind of normal person, I don't really see signing up to Twitter just to read news or whatever. But are they going to go directly to the Sydney Morning Herald or news.com.au or Daily Telegraph or whatever? Or are they like, yeah, where are they going to go? And I think that will be, to me, that'll be an interesting sign of what we might be able to do to speak to like that kind of person. Maybe we can bring this to a close. I mean, this has been uh, such a great conversation and really helping kind of slog through this bog of, of the media code debate, which has, I mean, it has been difficult to follow in a lot of ways and really unclear even to me up until this like last week when it all started kicking off. Uh, but, you know, on one hand, like, yeah, as we've laid out, the, the code is flawed in, in so many ways. And we can speculate forever about like what are the actual interests and, and motivations behind the code. Uh, I, I, I do worry that framing this as like a shakedown of, of Facebook and Google, which is how um, some, some commentators um, have framed it in that way, whereas others have framed it more in the way of like, this is, this is the government, like, you know, shutting down this like free and open internet, right? So it's like, everyone's got their own criticisms of it. I do worry that it, uh, it does make us hesitant to do any kind of regulation, any kind of intervention, um, unless it's like immediately perfect and appeases every single person, every every interested party, which is just, it's never going to happen, right? Like in, in this kind of like wave of interest around antitrust, I think this is an important experiment in terms of like, 
does the government have a role in trying to intervene in, in platform power? Uh, and I, I think a lot of people on both the left and the right and in the middle are coming out in different ways to say, no, no, actually the government doesn't have a role um, in intervening in this, whether explicitly or implicitly. I mean, the, the other alternative is that we can just reframe a shakedown as a positive experience <laughs> that shaking down facebook and google is exactly what we should, we should be doing as like a glo a global population <laughs> yeah. yeah we should yeah. turn it into a global village and they are an outsider that needs to you know uh, we have we need to have a conversation about who the fuck this guy <laughs> you know moisturing, moisturing through. yeah exactly run them, out, yeah. Run, them, run them out of town on the railroad you know we can do it <laughs> <laughs> we're exiling them to the mountaintop um, so mm -hmm. maybe we can bring it to a close by, I just want to hear what what's your alternative now I mean not, not in like a big blueprint kind of way but but what do you think of like something better um, ought to look like or at least ought to focus on doing it's a really good question because most of what I think about in terms of alternatives don't seem possible in worlds where Facebook and Google exist at the level that they do with the kind of audience capture that they do so to mm -hmm. me an alternative is always going to be prefaced by somehow breaking that power, that that platform mm -hmm. power, whether it means, you know, whether on the most extreme end, it means quite literally, as we just said, running them, running them to the mountaintop. Um, <laughs> or it means like the kind of regulation which loosens their, their at the very least, uh, loosens their kind of monopolistic power and allows other players to reemerge i mean again it, even as i say that it sounds like what we were talking about before um you know do we want to bring back blog spots does everyone get a blog spot now and <laughs> and whatever and does that and do it and do we revert to like the yahoo groups or geocities kind of model of how the how the world is information is organized i don't know obviously we're never going back to that because it, we've moved on but mm -hmm. yeah i mean to me i hope that this kicks off a more expansive view, as as you say, of the role that government or the public have in determining how the internet is run. You know, these decisions aren't made by fiat from California, basically, you know. <laughs> um, I think if once you do that, and if that grip is loosened, I feel like the, the room for a, a healthier sort of conversation emerges. What that looks like, I don't know. I, don't, I, can't, I, can't, really, I can't really predict, but I feel like that's the keystone. I, I think that's a great a great note to to end the conversation on. Um, I want to thank you again, James, for mm. for coming on and and helping us figure this all out. Uh, this has been really really great. Um, where can people find you and and your your work and your posting and all of that? Um, cool. Yeah. I mean, you can find me uh, at JR Hennessy, H-E-N-N-E-S-S-Y on Twitter. Uh, you can find, you can subscribe to my Substack, which I'm trying to get off the ground again, which is jrhennessy.substack.com. Um, I'm the editor of Business Insider Australia. I'm mostly an editor. I don't do a huge amount of reporting, so you're not going to see that, but we do lots of stuff on the local, uh, on this story specifically, we're covering quite closely and, you know, the interaction of uh, Australia and Australians with international tech platforms. So if you're interested in that stuff, we're doing quite a bit of that. Um, but yeah, that's, that's where you can find me. Great. And we'll, we'll throw links to all that in the episode description so people can just click and go. Uh, thanks awesome. again, James. This has been really great. And thanks everybody for listening. Um, join us later in the week on patreon.com slash this machine kills, uh, where Ed and I will be, I think, getting even deeper into this question of platform power, um, how to break that power, how that power operates, uh, and, and, and all that good stuff. Um, so join us there, subscribe, and uh, we will see y'all uh, in, the, in the premium episode later. Yes.